Welcome to the Pharmacotherapy Podcast. My name is Lindsay Devon. I am Professor Emeritus of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston. I also serve as Editor-in-Chief of Pharmacotherapy, an official journal of the American College of Clinical Pharmacy. Today, we were talking with Dr. Stephanie Stefanos. Dr. Stefanos is completing her PGY2 critical care residency at the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. Dr. Stefanos and her co-authors, Tyree Kaiser, Robert McLaren, Scott Mueller, and Paul Reynolds, updated a previously published manuscript on management of extravasation injuries published in pharmacotherapy in 2014. Their manuscript is titled, Management of Non-Cytotoxic Extravasation Injuries, a focused update on medications, treatment strategies, and peripheral administration of vasopressors and hypertonic saline. Sylvia, thank you for this update and welcome to the podcast. Thank you for that introduction, Lindsay, and for having me. It was definitely an honor to be part of this update, so I'm excited to share our work with you today. Well, let's um, discuss some of the highlights of your article. You note in your introduction that cytotoxic drug solutions, for example, drugs used in oncology as uh, chemotherapy, are well recognized to cause injury with extravasation. Your review is focused on non-cytotoxic extravasation injuries. Everyone, I think, is likely to receive an intravenous infusion sometime in their lives, and many of us may not be aware of how frequently infiltration injuries can occur. Would you begin by commenting on the incidence of these injuries? Yeah, that's a great introduction question and an important one to discuss because we all as pharmacists will at some point come across a question regarding an extravasation event. Um, Unfortunately, The true incidence of extravasation injuries is largely unknown because of the lack of a central reporting database, but we estimate that it's somewhere between 0.1 to 0.7% in the general population. Again, that can vary in different subpopulations like pediatrics or those getting cytotoxic agents, um, but that's where it's estimated to be based on reported events. And most of the described cases of extravasation in the literature involve cytotoxic or, like you mentioned, chemotherapy agents. There's a lot more data on the incidence of that, the management of it. But our focus has been on non-cytotoxic agents, and data for that is largely limited to case reports and anecdotal evidence, which not only makes it difficult to determine the incidence, but to also develop treatment recommendations because of the small low quality and conflicting evidence. So hopefully our paper can help kind of pave the way in guiding treatment strategies for those agents. I agree, probably underreporting occurs in uh, many situations in healthcare. Would you describe for our listeners the types of infiltration and extravasation injuries that can occur? Absolutely. So the types of infiltration um, described in the literature are really under different mechanisms of extravasation injuries. So the big categories to think of are first the vasoconstrictor mechanism of injury. So the biggest culprits here are your typical IV vasopressors, which can cause tissue ischemia or necrosis when they extravasate out into the tissues. This is kind of a double-edged sword because they can also do so in the absence of extravasation just based on their mechanism of action alone. Um, And the biggest update in our review 
was the addition of angiotensin II and terlipressin, which are newer agents and they're starting to become more prevalent in clinical practice and there's not a whole lot reported out there. So we provide readers some guidance on what to do in those clinical instances. A second category is pH-mediated injuries, and so this includes agents with either acidic or alkaline properties. Acidic agents can cause vasoconstriction, sloughing, cellular desiccation that can lead to more of a coagulative necrosis, and that coagulation can help to somewhat contain the extravasation. On the other hand, alkaline agents cause protein dissolution, and they denature extracellular membranes and matrices, and this allows for that diffusion of hydroxide ions, which causes tissue damage and necrosis. But because of that, alkaline agents are typically thought to have a higher propensity for severe damage because of that deeper deeper tissue penetration. The third big category is osmolar-mediated or either hypo or hyperosmolar-mediated agents. With either of these, it's really the shifting of fluid across cellular membranes that causes direct cellular damage, oxidative stress, apoptosis, and inflammation. And the last big category is cytotoxic, again, those chemotherapy agents, which was not a major focus of our review, but there are great reviews out there dedicated specifically to the management of cytotoxic extravasations. Lastly, there has been a recent newer category proposed in the literature to identify absorption refractory mechanisms of injury. And the two big agents that fall under this category are things like propofol and lipids. Um, And this occurs when like drug accumulation in the extravasated space can cause necrosis and things and complications like compartment syndrome. It's newer and it's not really well defined in the literature yet. So we need more studies to be able to establish it as a true category. But those are the big mechanisms of injury we think about when it comes to infiltration. Sylvia, when I was first reviewing your article, I was in the mindset of someone who's trying not to be familiar with critical care. And I was wondering how quickly can problems occur? I mean, if if injury can be immediate with infiltration or uh, possibly delayed and uh, perhaps even progressive for hours after a discontinuation of an infusion. Yeah, that's a great question and something I think I undervalued until I researched more into these injuries. Um, For some agents, we know that dose, duration, infusion site can predispose injury, such as with agents like vasopressors. We can see skin necrosis happen fairly quickly in patients on really high doses on several vasopressor agents for prolonged periods of time, especially if they're given peripherally. However, injuries and complications can still be multifactorial based on agent-specific properties and their mechanisms of injury, and all of that can lead to acute but also delayed complications. And I think the best example for this that's described in our paper is calcium and probably the most common that we will encounter, although there are several other examples. Um, We classify calcium chloride specifically as a hyperosmolar agent. But it also causes calcium-induced vasoconstriction and can also lead to delayed calcifications. So acutely in extravasation, it can manifest as erythema and papules even within just a few hours. But calcium, we know, has a propensity to precipitate. And particularly with phosphorus, it can spread deeper into those tissues, causing delayed calcifications. And these patients can be asymptomatic initially, but it can take even several weeks for that necrosis to develop. So when you're thinking about giving calcium IV, especially peripherally, we know there is that risk of extravasation and we might not see it even within their hospital stay. That's just something to keep in mind and possibly to warn patients about as they progress through their hospital stay and after. 
I was thinking particularly about uh, the intensive care unit where there's essentially supervision 24 hours on a day, but when someone goes to a step-down unit, if um, they're receiving the intravenous infusion overnight, they could go for hours without anyone checking on whether the line is infiltrated or not. Well, let, let's move on. You, you mentioned vasopressors a couple of times. Your review is unique in having a focus on vasopressors and hypertonic saline infusions. My impression is that uh, peripheral administration of these agents, rather than what's traditionally been through a central venous line, um, has been a trend in, in critical care. Could you comment on the advantages and disadvantages of this practice? Yeah, absolutely. Um, discussing peripheral administration of vasopressors and hypertonic saline is one of the parts of this paper I was most excited for. Um, definitely a huge trend in critical care with starting to administer these more peripherally. But as we know, vasopressors and hypertonic saline are emergent medications that typically require rapid time to administration. Patients can be in shock, requiring immediate vasopressors, or they can have ICP crisis, in which, in which case a bolus of 23.4% hypertonic or an infusion of 3% is warranted sooner than when you can get a central line place. And while we do often prefer having a central venous catheter for administration, that is not often feasible, especially in immediate and most emergency situations. Um, it can be time and resource intensive, even in hospitals that are not considered low resource. We also know that delayed administration of vasopressors, particularly in septic shock, is an independent risk factor for mortality and worsening organ failure. So in many instances, we have to weigh that risk of extravasation with the benefit of faster administration times. Um, while there is very much a risk of extravasation injuries, we have recently had study after study demonstrating that overall, the incidence is extremely small when given in acute situations for short periods of time. For vasopressors particularly, the practice of administering them peripherally is becoming more widely adopted, particularly because it's being demonstrated in larger studies. One that comes to mind is the recent Clover study in New England Journal of Medicine. They showed that among 500 patients who received peripheral vasopressors, there were only a total of three extravasation events reported. That's an extremely small incidence and is still consistent with data that's reported from previous observational and randomized controlled trials. And even among those who do experience extravasations, um, very few are considered severe. The peripheral administration of hypertonic saline follows a very similar path. There are several observational studies that I feel come out almost every year, evaluating several concentrations of hypertonic saline given at various rates, showing little to no incidence of extravasation injuries. And based on that data, I feel extremely comfortable even pushing 23.4% peripherally over two to five minutes or running 3% even at rates up to 100 milliliters per hour. So in summary, the advantages are that we can avoid placing central venous catheters in patients, particularly if we anticipate that they will only require short durations of vasopressors. And we know that central lines carry their own risks, such as infections and thrombotic events. Again, we know that faster administration times can reduce mortality. So based on that data, I feel like oftentimes it does outweigh that risk of harm. But the harm is that there is the risk of extravasation, thrombophlebitis, um, clotting, and it's just something that we have to take into account. And maybe not every patient is the best candidate for peripheral administration upfront. Well, I think you've made a very important point that 
most, if not all, therapeutic decisions are a balance of the uh, risk versus the benefit. And in an acute situation, um, it sounds like here the the benefits outweigh certainly uh, the risk of an extravasation injury. So let, let me dig down just a little bit further and ask you, when peripheral administration of a vasopressor is the therapeutic decision, does the risk of extravasation injury have any role in the choice among the several vasopressor alternatives that are available? Given the large heterogeneity between studies evaluating the use of peripheral vasopressors, it is kind of difficult to tease out what risk factors uh, there are for extravasation. So whether that be the agent, the dose, the duration, location of infusion, we know that all of those are risk factors that have been pinpointed before. But when it comes specifically to vasopressors, it is just hard to determine what is going to cause extravasation more than others. Uh, Meta-analyses have not really singled out certain vasopressors with a higher risk of extravasation, but we we do typically grab the agent that is most widely studied peripherally and has it established use as a first-line vasopressor in most clinical scenarios, and in this case, it's norepinephrine. Um, Vasopressin and epinephrine are largely underrepresented in these peripheral vasopressor studies. So if your hospital is considering making a peripheral vasopressor protocol, it's reasonable to start with norepinephrine with the understanding that patients who will end up requiring two or more pressors will likely be getting a central line placed in the meantime. And I know our hospital recently rolled out a peripheral IV vasopressor protocol with only allowing norepinephrine up to 0.2 mics per kilo per minute for a maximum of 24 hours. And I think that's where most hospitals have started and most of the example protocols I've seen at other institutions have started as well. We've moved up to the point of asking you to comment about treatment, assume that extravasation uh, has occurred, infiltration. Your review includes a very detailed algorithm for the, for the treatment of extravasation events. Would you mind commenting on maybe just a general approach to what members of a healthcare team can do when infiltration or extravasation occurs? Absolutely, yeah. One of our biggest goals with this review was to create a very user-friendly reference to follow regarding the management of extravasation injuries. It is very much, like you said, a multidisciplinary effort. Um, A lot of these interventions, especially up front, are escalated based on nurses' assessments at the bedside of either patient-reported pain or uncomfort, along with any visual cues that an extravasation may be occurring, especially for patients who aren't able to verbalize that pain. So if any of those are present in the the first step is typically to always just stop the infusion immediately if there's any concern or patient complaints. And from there, nurses can assess and grade the extravasation using an infiltration scale. And the infiltration is graded on a scale of zero to four, looking at different injury characteristics, such as skin blanching, extent of edema, pain, skin discoloration. And down our algorithm, you can see that it splits and combines if it's either grade one or two versus grade three or four. So if it's grade one or two, we just recommend removing the IV cannula completely. If it's grade three or four, it's characterized by more edema or pain, and or circulatory impairment. And that's when we suggest instead leaving the IV cannula up front in place to attempt to aspirate any fluid that's causing that accumulation with a syringe before removing the cannula. The next step after that for all patients is to elevate the limb to facilitate minimizing swelling, encourage lymphatic resorption of the drug. And we want this for at least 24 to 48 hours because it can be a pretty slow process. 
So up until this point, you'll notice that most of these interventions are non-pharmacologic. And so far, these steps are guided by nursing prior to even contacting a provider that extravasation has occurred. So this brings a great point that having a nursing pathway or protocol can facilitate faster detection and intervention and actually minimize long-term complications. But from here, providers and the multidisciplinary team can be involved to initiate agent-specific measures based on the degree and injury and symptoms. This is where we as pharmacists can play a big role because while few, there are some pharmacological interventions that we can consider for certain agents, but these are always an adjunct to non-pharmacological interventions, which mostly consist of either a warm or cold compress for patients or even surgical interventions if needed. We summarize these recommendations down the algorithm based on the class and mechanism of the agent. And so you really have to understand mechanism of injury to determine which pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic interventions to take next. And one of the biggest tasks for other providers on the healthcare team is to know which extravasated injuries require additional monitoring, like we talked about before, not just immediately, but even for hours or maybe even days following extravasation events due to that possibility of requiring surgical interventions. And what we're looking for here is that surgical emergency of compartment syndrome for some of these agents. While the algorithm and table of agents we've included in our review are not all inclusive, it hopefully empowers pharmacists and providers to identify properties of an extravasated agent and then to make clinical decisions on what the next best course of action is and whether or not to expect severe injury. This is um, certainly a lot of therapeutic decisions going into treatment decisions. I'm just wondering, can some of the treatments uh, themselves cause problems? Absolutely. Aside from what we discussed in terms of you really have to know that the mechanism of action and mechanism of injury to be able to guide therapeutic options, if you give the wrong antidote, say you gave a warm compress instead of a cold one or vice versa, those can make those side effects and the injuries of the extravasation worse. But for us as pharmacists, we really do have to know those pharmacologic antidotes and what have a risk of causing harm. So an example is fentolamine. It's an alpha-1 antagonist. It's commonly used as an antidote for vasopressor extravasations. Um, But as we expect, with an alpha-1 antagonist, patients should be monitored for those signs and symptoms of hypotension or possibly reflex tachycardia, which for somebody on vasopressors is very undesirable. And similarly, topical nitroglycerin is a very potent vasodilator that can be used also for the treatment of vasopressor extravasations. The dose and duration of using this topical nitroglycerin is really the the limiting factor in the extent of hypotension because of the likelihood of systemic absorption. So oftentimes they may not be feasible in patients still requiring vasopressor support and a more locally acting agent may be more appropriate. Thinking back about an earlier part of our discussion about uh, trends in intravenous drug administration, and it occurs to me that home infusion therapy is becoming uh, increasingly popular. In fact, it's a, you know it's somewhat of an industry in itself. Um, Are there any special measures that uh, should be taken to minimize risk and and prevent injury in the home infusion field? Yeah, that's a great question because as our listeners have gathered so far, probably we don't have a ton of treatment options and most are non-pharmacologic, which may or may not always help. So preventative measures are extremely important to avoiding injuries from happening in the first place. 
We know that there are several factors we consider in the inpatient setting, duration of infusion, patient-specific risk factors, where to place the the IV infusion site, and all of those can determine if patients have a higher risk of extravasation. On the outpatient side, this is a little bit different because we expect them to have longer durations of treatment and probably fewer frequencies of monitoring for those extravasation injuries. So for most patients, we want to make sure they have a really secure line in a location that is not as susceptible to injury. So the type of line will usually depend on what agent is being used in the expected duration of treatment. Um, A lot of patients do end up going the outpatient setting for cytotoxic therapies, in which case a PIC line may be preferred. But the risk of having that central line may not be optimal for, say, a patient getting a short course of IV antibiotics. So in summary, it's really important to consider infusion and patient-specific risk factors to determine best practices for prevention of extravasation. But you'll see that the trend really has focused on preventing it as opposed to finding ways to treat them. Now, a final question for you is one which I'm just sort of seeking your perspective, what I call the the 10,000-foot level related to extravasation injuries. Um, would you comment on whether the uh, these occur because of the need to administer um, fluids and drugs intravenously has increased over time or uh, has really the potential hazard increased from what's being administered intravenously? Yeah, I don't know if I would necessarily say that the need for IV agents has increased or that it's any riskier to give IV infusions. Patients are just as sick as ever, and the medications are the same for the most part. But after working and talking with Paul Reynolds, who authored the original review, the biggest change we've seen is largely in the extent of reporting of these extravasation injuries. And over time, we have begun to also describe some of the longer-term complications that can occur because of extravasations. However, with a better understanding of the increased morbidity that extravasation causes, the focus has shifted more towards prevention strategies, identifying risk factors, um, and advanced technologies that help with improved line placement and faster detection of extravasations. So for for hospital setting, this also includes developing institution-specific protocols for identifying and treating extravasations and optimizing the use of your multidisciplinary team, which, like in many other clinical settings, has been associated with improved outcomes. Dr. Stephanos, I want to thank you for a very insightful discussion. Our listeners can access the more detailed discussion and the tables and algorithm from the current pharmacotherapy website. Thank you again. It was a pleasure. Thank you.